Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to Matthew 14. Matthew 14, which can be found on page 769 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 14. And if you were here last week, you may recall that we considered two case studies of negative responses to Jesus, responses of unbelief from those who didn't properly recognize and respond to who he was, who he is. And this morning, we'll see more, more positive, more believing responses to Jesus. It's against the, the dark backdrop of rejection that Matthew is, is pulling back the curtain a little bit more so that we can see and, and recognize more clearly who Jesus really is in contrast to the misconceptions of Herod and of the people of Nazareth. Remember the people of Nazareth, they'd said, isn't this the carpenter's son? You know, he's just, he's just an average villager, just one of us. Herod had said, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. But that's not who Jesus was. In response to the unbelief of the people of Nazareth, we read that, that Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Herod, because he had been so concerned about his own, his own glory and his own honor, had put to death the prophet of God and silenced the warnings of conscience. And as he did so, he was left in the dark, left to his own misconceptions and his own false understanding of Jesus. But blessed were those who rightly recognized Jesus. Because rightly recognizing Jesus changes everything. Rightly recognizing Jesus changes everything. So if, you, if you've turned to Matthew 14, I want to ask that those who are able, please stand as we read the word of God. Matthew 14 starting in verse 13. Again, this is right after Jesus has heard about the death of John the Baptist. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. 
Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garments. And as many as touched it were made well. You may be seated. Well, this morning, what I'd like to do is first follow Matthew's line of thought as he's presenting Jesus to us in this passage. This is, this is what we want to do in expositional preaching, right? We want to say, not just what, what are my opinions, but what is the point of this passage of Scripture? What was, what was the point to the original audience? What is the intention, that the, the lesson that God has put in this passage for us? And then, once we've identified that, we can start applying that to our lives. So let's first follow Matthew's line of thought as he's presenting Jesus to us in this passage. What do Jesus' actions and words tell us here about who he is? That's really the, that, that seems to be Matthew's focus through this section of Jesus. People not recognizing Jesus rightly, and others people, other people recognizing him for who he was. So what does this passage tell us about who Jesus is? And then secondly, we'll think about why this matters. You know, how does, how does rightly recognizing Jesus affect our daily lives and our thinking and our living and our relationships? What does it mean for us? So first of all, point number one is this. What do Jesus' actions and words here tell us about who he is? What do Jesus' actions and words tell us about who he is? Well, first of all, he's full of compassion. Look at verse 13. We see that Jesus is withdrawing from where he'd been ministering, and he was seeking out a desolate place. There seem to have been multiple reasons for this. One was that... Um, well, as verse 13 says, when he heard this, he withdrew. Well, heard what? what? What did he hear? 
Well, back in verse 12, it was the followers of John the Baptist who had brought word of uh, John's execution to Jesus. When he heard that, he withdrew. So, so perhaps he was putting some space between himself and Herod. Jesus, uh, his time to die having not yet come. That may be one reason why he was withdrawing to a desolate place. Another factor that we see in the passage is it seems that Jesus was, was seeking some solitude, some, some time and, and, and space alone to pray. You know, when he gets to the shore, there's all the crowds, but what does he do as soon as the crowds have been dismissed? He goes away by himself on the mountain to pray. And a third reason why Jesus was trying to get away, we, we don't see in this text, but we, we learn from the parallel account in Mark. Mark 6, we read that Jesus' apostles had also just returned from a preaching tour and were giving him their report. And Jesus said, he said, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So, Jesus was like, all right, guys, let's get away for a little bit. Let's rest. Let's recuperate. They get in the boat, headed out across the Sea of Galilee, which would have meant that no one on shore could have known exactly where they were heading. You know, they couldn't just look up their itinerary. They're just headed out across the water. Who knows where they're going to land? And so in order for the crowds to follow him, it says they they followed him on, on foot from the towns, I imagine probably they had, they had people running along the shore, kind of keeping their eye on Jesus' boat and, and sending word back, like, he's, he's coming, I, I can still see his boat in the distance. And then when he lands, there are the crowds. So much for the, the solitude, so much for the, the rest and recuperation. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't get frustrated with the people. Instead, his heart goes out to them. He has compassion on them. What patience Jesus had. And he proceeds to resume his ministry of healing and teaching. Jesus is full of compassion, but but not only is he full of compassion, Jesus is able to supernaturally provide for human need. As the hour is growing late and the, the sun is descending towards the western horizon, what's on the mind of the disciples but supper? I think we can relate to them oftentimes. I know I can. What's for supper, right? And they, they decide to go to Jesus, you know, as if he's lost track of time, right? Like, uh, hey, hey, Jesus, it's about supper time. There, there's no places to eat or even to buy food out in this desolate wilderness area. And I love how Jesus responds in verse 16. And Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Impossible, right? Like, you're joking, right, Jesus? You give them something to eat. We don't have anything. Are you crazy? Now, in John's account of this, uh, he says that Jesus said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. So he's, he's testing his disciples here. Well, where do the disciples turn? Instead of turning to Jesus, they begin looking to their own resources. Instead of saying, yes, Lord, uh, only provide for us what's needful for the task, they say in, in verse 17, we have only five loaves and two fish. Jesus, we don't have enough. God often works this way, doesn't he? He will often test our faith and our obedience by calling us to, to things 
that would be impossible in our own strength. And then he, and then once we start obeying, he comes through and provides us strength we didn't have before. He provides us the resources we need. I mean, put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a moment. Jesus says to, to bring the five loaves and the two fish to him, and he blesses them. He, he, he takes the food, he blesses it. But we don't read that all of a sudden, the fish just exploded into this big mountain of fish. It wasn't, it wasn't as though anything spectacular happened right there on the spot that, that awed the crowds. It, was, it, it seems to be more so as the disciples were distributing the food, as they took from Jesus' hand and as they turned around, probably still questioning in their minds, like, like okay, a few people are going to eat, maybe, but okay, Jesus, if you say so. But then they went back for more. And, and we read that they all ate and were satisfied. When Jesus throws a dinner party, nobody goes away hungry. Everyone ate and was satisfied. We see that Jesus is able to supernaturally provide for human need. It was, Matthew is belaboring this point that this was clearly a miracle. I mean, for one, they, they ended up with more than they started with. Twelve baskets of food left over? Okay, that's obviously miraculous. And those who ate were, verse 21 says, about 5,000 men besides women and children. So we call this the feeding of the 5,000, but that's just the, the low number. There's more than 5,000 there. Jesus is able to supernaturally provide for human need. But next, Matthew shows us, not only is he full of compassion, not only is he able to supernaturally provide for human need, he's also Lord over the laws of nature. He's Lord over the laws of nature. We see this in his walking on the water. Well, Jesus, you know, he finally got some solitude. He finally, uh, he got his disciples. He, verse 22 says, he made them get in the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. I love that. Jesus is the, the last one on the scene. You know, he's, he's doing the cleanup while his disciples get in the boat. And he stays there after hours to dismiss the crowd. And then he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone on the mountain. Now, just in passing, it seems Jesus was praying for quite a long time. I mean, when, when evening came, he was there alone on the mountain. And then he doesn't meet up with his disciples until the fourth watch of the night which that, that would have been somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. the next morning. So evidently, Jesus took prayer very seriously. Brothers and sisters, don't we, weak and sinful as we are, don't we need prayer all the more? You know, Jesus, Jesus prayed as an example to us. So just, just let, us, let us take from that, you know, we, we ought to take prayer seriously. And, and it's good, it does us good at times to get away even by ourselves and make sure there aren't distractions and spend extended amounts of time in, in prayer talking to God. Well, the disciples start rowing across the lake. A strong wind starts up and opposes their progress. I mean, they're probably already tired, right? They just got back from this preaching tour. They were supposed to have a vacation. 
That got interrupted. Now they're headed back across the lake to try to find somewhere else to be alone. And then, as if things couldn't get any worse, this storm comes up and blows them off course. And uh, the disciples were, were a long way from shore. In the Greek, in verse 24, it, it says literally, many stadia. Now that's, that's a measurement of distance that's about 607 feet. Uh, from, from parallel accounts, it seems that they were, they were at least a few miles out into the Sea of Galilee. So they were really blown off course. They're basically right in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, way out there, no land in sight. You know, they're just getting, getting blown about by this storm. It's the middle of the night. They're probably exhausted. The waves are tossing the boat, and Jesus is not with them this time. He's not sleeping in the boat. He's, he's nowhere to be seen. But then, as if things couldn't get any more frightening, they see this figure approaching them on the water. And what's the natural thing? Like, there's some ghost, some phantom coming at us now. As if this night wasn't, wasn't eerie enough with this, this howling winds and this darkness. And now there's this person and they, they're terrified and they cry out, it is a, a ghost. It's a ghost. But of course, it wasn't a ghost. It was, it was Jesus. And in verse 27, he says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. So Jesus, we see that he is Lord over the laws of nature. When he wills, the very surface of the sea becomes solid ground under his feet. And again, it, it's not as though he was walking on, in the shallow water on some rocks. Some Bible skeptics and people that are trying to deny miracles would have tried to explain this away and somehow, like, oh, Jesus was just, he was walking in shallow water. He, he knew where some rocks were, and he was just, it just appeared that he was walking on the water. But the Sea of Galilee is pretty deep, and they were right out in the middle of it. No, the point is not that, that Jesus was walking in the shallows, tricking his disciples. He was walking on the water. And there's something profoundly symbolic about this walking on the water. This is something that, that God is said to do in the Old Testament. The scriptures that these Jews would have been familiar with, maybe they had read Psalm 77, which says of God, poetically speaking of God, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your, foots, your footprints were unseen. Or Job 9.8 that says of God that, that he alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. So to the, to the reader who's familiar with, with the Old Testament, you're reading this and you're like, wow, that's something, that's what God is said to do. What God does, Jesus does. For catching the hint, he is Lord over the laws of nature. Well, he's full of compassion. He's able to supernaturally provide for human need. He's Lord over the laws of nature. And then he identifies himself as I am. In verse 27, Jesus says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And what doesn't come across as clearly in our English translations, uh, many, many Bible scholars familiar with the Greek have, have picked up on, that when Jesus says, it is I, in verse 27, he's referring to himself 
According to uh, Bible commentator Leon Morris, he's, he's using the emphatic pronoun commonly used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament where God is the speaker. The expression is sometimes used in the Old Testament where God is revealing himself, such as, I am who I am, when speaking to Moses out of the burning bush, for example. So, so Jesus is identifying himself in this way, which at least would have strong overtones of deity. Like this is the way we've heard God identify himself in the scriptures. I am. Who but God could walk on the stormy waters? And then here he is identifying himself in this way. This is getting clearer and clearer. There is none other this is none other than the master of wind and wave, the one who, as Hebrews 1.3 says, upholds the universe by the word of his power. We don't need to try to find a way for Jesus to have been walking on, sh- on, on rocks in the shallow water. If he is who he claims to be, if he's God, then of course it makes sense that he could overrule the laws of nature and walk on the water. But also we, we see that he's able to impart his power to others when he pleases and we see that whenever he, he calls Peter to walk on the water. And you almost wonder, which is the greater miracle, right? Jesus walking on the water or Peter, this common fisherman, one just like us, a sinner like us, walking on the water. Jesus, whenever he pleased, was able to give the power he had and impart that to others. But also we see that Jesus accepts worship as son of God. Jesus accepts worship as Son of God. We see this in verse 33. When Jesus gets back into the boat, they worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So they were paying homage to him. They were, they were worshiping him, not merely as a great man, but in this setting, in this context, worshiping him as divine. And Jesus does not forbid them. Elsewhere in Scripture, in Revelation 19, for example, John falls down to worship an angelic messenger, the same, the same Greek word there for worship. And, and the angel says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Worship God. Matthew records this worship with, with nothing negative. Jesus doesn't forbid them. He accepts the worship. And it's fitting and appropriate given who Jesus is has been revealing himself to be. So return to our question, who is Matthew presenting to us here? How is he, how is he painting this portrait of Jesus? What do Jesus' actions and words tell us about who he is? If I was to put it all in a sentence, it would be this. Jesus is identified here as the Lord over nature, the I am, the Son of God, and therefore is able to supernaturally provide for human need and impart his power to others. I'll say it again. In this passage, Jesus is identified as Lord over nature, the I am, the Son of God, and therefore he is able to supernaturally provide for human need and impart his power to others. So once again, this is, this is not the carpenter's son as the Nazarenes thought. This is not John the Baptist risen from the dead, as Herod thought. This is the God-man, the eternal, uncreated creator, sustainer, Lord over all things. 
Now, having taken to himself a, a true human body and soul, born of the Virgin Mary, growing, eating, sleeping, sweating, living among the people of the earth. This is the God-man. Okay, there's your theology lesson from Matthew. That's, that's the point. Matthew's wanting to make it clear to us that the God of the Old Testament, the same God who revealed himself to Moses from the burning bush, is now walking on the Sea of Galilee. But secondly... What does rightly recognizing Jesus mean for us? What does it mean for us? How does this apply to us? First of all, it means he's worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship. What about you? Have you, have you recognized him like those on the boat? Have you fallen down before him in humble reverence as Lord of all? Consider how Consider how many benefited from Jesus' ministry in the short term, but never truly believed on him in saving faith. Think of, think of all the, the crowds who ate the bread that, there on the, on the mountain when, as Jesus fed the 5,000. They ate the bread that perishes and were filled, but the vast majority did not cling to him in faith, but turned away at the last. The crowds that followed him, they followed him into Jerusalem, shouting his praises one day and a few days later. How fickle were those crowds? They, they turned against him and they were shouting out, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. So let this caution those who hear the word and benefit from Christ's kingdom and his kindness. Don't be satisfied with the temporal, earthly blessings that come from Christ. Seek the eternal. You know, many have been blessed by having godly Christian parents, parents who, you know, didn't abuse and neglect them. They've had the blessing of growing up in the church around friendly and caring people, of hearing the word preached and sung and prayed Sunday after Sunday. And yet for all that blessing from Christ, that's all they end up with. That's all they ever receive. Don't be content just to know a lot about Jesus. Do you know him? Don't be content for your relationship to Jesus to just be recognizing him as the, the giver of your daily bread at the dinner table. Giving him a little thanks in the morning for a good night's sleep. I'm sure these crowds were thankful for the meal Jesus provided. I'm sure they went away and they, they thought, man, what a guy. How awesome is Jesus? But how many of them ended up hungry forever in hell? Never having taken of the bread of life, the salvation that Jesus offers himself as their savior. They were satisfied with the food that perishes and didn't heed Jesus' invitation to the heavenly banquet. Jesus said to them in John's account, don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So how do you, how do you get that eternal soul food? That, that metaphor for the eternal life, the eternal life-giving sustenance that Jesus provides. How do you rightly recognize and worship Jesus? Well, the first thing is by believing the gospel. Believing the gospel. The gospel is this. 
that though we have sinned against God, though we have broken his law, he has sent Jesus Christ into the world. God took on flesh and the, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on a human body and he came and he lived the life that you have not lived, the perfect life that you should have lived. That is what Jesus did. He never broke a law of God. He never lusted. He was never covetous. He, he never spoke a word in, in sinful anger. Jesus always did what pleased the Father. And yet Jesus was punished for our sins and our transgressions. There on the cross, he took the place of sinners so that sinners could have the place he prepares for them. And this is received, this is received by faith alone. It's not by, it's not by doing your best to turn your life around and offering to God your, your best efforts. It's by coming to him, admitting that you can never be good enough, never worthy enough, never deserving enough to have this gift, to, to claim it as, as a right. But coming to him, pleading for mercy as a beggar pleads for a handout. Not because they deserve it, just asking him because he has graciously offered himself to you. Come to him in faith and you will not be cast out. Believe and be saved. And if you have any questions about that, if you're not sure if, you've, if you truly know Christ as your Lord and Savior, please come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to help you understand that more deeply. It's about believing that Jesus died and rose and will return and that your eternal destiny is wrapped up in him. He is your only hope on the day of judgment. Well, that's the first thing. He's worthy of worship. But secondly, Rightly recognizing Jesus means that we, we shouldn't live like practical atheists. We shouldn't, I mean, a lot of Christians, they believe in God, but they live as if there is no God. We, we sometimes live not taking God into account in our daily lives. What things do we not even attempt because we're only, we're only reckoning on our limited resources? We're not taking him into account. In, into account. Jesus told his disciples, you give them something to eat. And they responded, we have only, we have only five loaves and two fish. They felt their limitations. They knew their great need and their little resources, but they weren't accounting for what Jesus could do. How often do we think this way? Take a common relationship problem, for example. You know, I know of someone who, who's had a, a strained relationship with her father and there had been, you know, hurtful words exchanged and, and you know, the father had, had overstepped his bounds, been a bit manipulative, trying to speak too much into his, his adult married daughter's life. And this, is, this had resulted in, in a distancing between, between father and daughter. And, and she had stopped spending time with, with her father and even on the holidays wouldn't come around, wouldn't let him see the grandkids. And as time went on, the, the father humbled himself. He apologized, tried to reconcile, even offered to, to see a counselor of, of their choice, but to no avail. And when asked about, the, about healing the rift in the family, and both, both parties are professing believers, by the way, but this is how they responded. This is how the daughter responded. She said, um, I can't put a timeline on healing. 
I'm just taking it one day at a time. I can't put a timeline on healing. I'm taking it one day at a time. Now keep in mind, this is, this is after the father had already asked for forgiveness and, and wanted to reconcile. And yet she's still holding back. You know, I, I want to just taking it a day at a time. Can't put a timeline on healing. It sounds like normal counsel you'd receive from, you know, a, a secular therapist, right? You heal in your time. You reconcile when you're ready, when you feel the emotional strength to do so in and of yourself. Then you, whenever you're comfortable, you go and make things right. But that's not what Jesus commands. Jesus doesn't give the Christian the option to put peacemaking on the back burner. It's not something that can be put off. We're commanded to forgive others before we'd ask God to forgive us. Mark eleven twenty five. whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. That your heavenly father may forgive your trespasses. I mean, even in the Lord's prayer, how are we to pray? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As we forgive our debtors. And our forgiveness, brothers and sisters, is to be of the same kind that Christ has extended to us. Colossians 3, 12 through 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So forgive like God has forgiven you. And he doesn't say, okay, you know, I forgive you, but I'm shunning you, I'm staying away until you learn to stop hurting my feelings and stop being so insensitive and, and learn to show me proper respect. That's not the way God forgives us. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, you put yourself in, in the way of physical harm and abuse, but I am saying that we're to reconcile as, as much as possible in God's way as he calls us to. Jesus, he told his disciples, you give them something to eat. The disciples, we have only, Jesus, we have only five loaves and two fish. Jesus tells us, forgive as I have forgiven you. Jesus, we have only you know my emotional state, Jesus? We have only. Yes, he knows. I can't lead my family in family devotions. I haven't been to Bible college. I'm not good at explaining things. Jesus, we have only. I can't talk to my neighbor about Jesus. I'm, I'm extremely introverted. Jesus, we have, we have only. I can't read through the Bible. I don't have a good attention span. Jesus, we have only, brothers and sisters, when we have Jesus, we've got more than we had before. We've got more than we had before. We're not on our own. And if he calls us to do something, don't just look at what you have. Don't just look within yourself at your natural ability. Look for strength and help from above. Step out in faith, in obedience, looking for him to provide you the strength you need to do what would have been impossible in your own strength. Pray for it, ask him for it, and he will provide. 2 Peter 1.3, he has provided to us all things necessary 
for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Everything you need for the Christian life, he has provided. He doesn't leave us ill-equipped to do his will. But sometimes he will test us and say, you give them something to eat. Bring what little you have, lay it before Jesus in prayer, and then turn back around and start walking in obedience. And you'll find that little is much when God is in it. But, but also, recognizing, rightly recognizing Jesus means that if we've entrusted ourselves to him, if we've entrusted ourselves to him, then we can trust him in life's storms. Consider the disciples in the boat in the middle of the night, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, by themselves. But, but the, the storm that they found themselves in, they, they were just following Jesus' orders. He had told them to get in this boat and, and said that he was going go, to go, go ahead and he would meet them. They were following his orders. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, the way of obedience to Jesus will land you right in the middle of a storm. And you may, be question, you may be wondering, like, was this supposed to happen? Was this part of the plan? I love, what, I love what Matthew Henry says about this. He says, it is no new thing for Christ's disciples to meet with storms in the way of their duty and to be sent to sea when their master foresees a storm. But let them not take it unkindly. What he does, they know not now, but they shall know hereafter that Christ designs hereby to manifest himself with the more wonderful grace to them and for them. We don't always understand what God is doing, but we will soon enough. I wonder this morning if, if you feel storm-tossed on the angry waves of life and, and it seems that Jesus is distant and there's no ray of sunshine piercing through the dark nights of your soul. But have you entrusted yourself to Jesus and to his care? Have you? And if you have, maybe what you need to hear this morning is, is Jesus' words. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Rightly recognizing Jesus, it also helps us understand his ways, how he patiently works to strengthen our faith. Think about Peter walking on the water. He stepped out of the boat, and one foot after another, he's marching on the waves. Man, I bet, I bet he had some good stories to tell his grandkids. About that time, tell us, tell us, Grandpa Peter, about that time that you walked on the Sea of Galilee. But after he'd gone a little way, at some point it hit him. We read in verse 30 that when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. I mean, Peter, you just, you just walked on the water. What are you doing? Like, don't you remember what you did like two seconds ago? Why, why are you doubting? Why are you doubting? You know, doubt is irrational, isn't it? We, we so quickly forget God's faithfulness. I mean, two seconds ago, Peter, come on. How forgetful are we? We're, we're so often like Peter. But Jesus... Jesus had enabled him to walk on the water, and then Jesus allows him to sink for a moment. Jesus allowed him to sink. He was beginning to sink, verse 30 says. 
And I think Jesus is teaching Peter here a, a lesson, a valuable lesson about faith. Again, I love how Matthew Henry puts it. He says, Christ bid him come, not only that he might walk upon the water and so know Christ's power, but also that he might sink and know his own weakness. Whenever our eyes are on Jesus, whenever our eyes are on him, that's when we have his strength. But, but whenever we're looking at the, the waves, we're forgetting him. We're looking at, we're lo- and it's irrational because of, of who he is. But, but lastly, rightly recognizing Jesus will move us with eagerness to bring those in need to him who is able to meet their need. It moves us to, to evangelism and discipleship. It moves us to fulfill the Great Commission. Verse 34 says that when they'd crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So they landed on shore and the people, they saw him, they recognized him, and they knew what to do. They knew what to do. Here is the healer. Where are our sick? You know, you can picture these guys, you know, running through the streets of the villages, running down the, the, the mountain paths, banging on the doors. Hey, you got anybody sick in here? Bring them out. The healer has landed on our shores. They were eager, excited by their faith in what Jesus could do. They'd recognized him. Brothers and sisters, do we recognize him? Or like the disciples, have we forgotten who is in our presence, who has promised to be with us even to the end of the age? And do we simply look to ourselves like, I don't have, I don't have much to offer. I don't have what it takes. We have only... Do we know him and his power? Do we remember how he saved us from our sin and caused us to be born again by his Holy Spirit? How he's breathed new life into our spiritual deadness. How he's created love for God in hearts that formerly cared only for ourselves. Well, knowing him, recognizing him, we will eagerly and noti- we will eagerly notify our neighbors that they may come, that they may be healed of their sin sickness and given new life. He is sufficient for our every need. And he's sufficient for our every need because, because of who he is. Because he is the Lord over nature, the I am, the son of God, who is able to supernaturally provide for human need and to impart his power to others even to us as we step out in faith to follow his directions. Let's pray. Lord God, help us. Help us not to doubt. Help us not to fear. Help us not to to look simply to ourselves, to look simply at our circumstances and to forget you, to forget your power, to forget your compassion, Lord, help us to walk by faith. Give us grace, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.